Good morning, Faith Bible. Uh, as Pastor Tom said, my name is Chris. It is a joy to be with you this morning. For the last five years or so, I have been the lead pastor of Life Point Church in Norfolk. If you're from there, you know that they call it something different. They call it Norfolk up there. There's a whole story behind it. They actually sell a t-shirt that says Norfolk, and in place of the L, it has a fork. And uh, I was going to wear it underneath my blazer, but I wasn't sure how that would go here, and so didn't do that. Well, I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be here and grateful um, particularly for this church. Um, in, in case you don't know, this church um, ha has just held a special um, place for me, a special place for our church. Um, one of the people who was instrumental in helping get me to Norfolk and revitalize the, the church there was, was at one time a part here. Um, others ha have helped us um, just navigate things in terms of bylaws and finances and figuring that kind of stuff. But in particular, um, your pastor, Pastor Tom, has um, been a dear friend and mentor, and confidant, and uh, the guy that I can pick up the phone and call and complain to when things aren't going well, um, and ask advice to, and I just say, hey, here's the situation, what would you do, and, and some of the time he gives me great advice, and the other time he tells me to pray about it, and, uh, but anyway, it's been really good and a joy, and, and, and I just want to make sure that you as a church know that, that your church um, is so much bigger than even what your church is doing. There's, a, there's actually... Um, there's a few of us around the state that refer to Pastor Tom as the Godfather. And uh, so if you want to call him that, I think that would be a great idea. Well, it's a joy to be with you today. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to either open it up, turn it on, whatever it takes to get to Revelation chapter 3. And as you do, I want to pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, as we sang, great are you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we know that we come before you this morning and we can sing songs that are pleasing to you, God, because of what you have done for us, Jesus. That we can come into your presence, that you want to hear from us, that you invite us to sit at your feet, that you invite us to hear from you, and that we do get to hear from you. And so, um, Spirit of God, I pray that you would fill me, that you would fill this place. Your promise is that your word is living and active and it pierces us in just the ways that you want it to. And so this morning, whether it's painful for us or it's a, a, a surgical incision or if it's something more like a prod, a, a get going, whatever it is, God, we invite it from you this morning. We believe that as we open the Word of God, the Spirit of God uses it to read us. And so read us this morning. Whittle away things in us that, that need to be whittled away. Encourage us in places where we need to be encouraged. Convict us in places where we need to be convicted. God, we love you. You promise that this doesn't return void, and so we pray that it wouldn't. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if this is your first time at Faith Bible, welcome. It's my second time, and so we'll be kind of in this thing together. If you've been in and out because it's the summer, hey, welcome. Church does exist in the summer. Glad that you're here uh, this on this particular Sunday. But either way, however you find yourself, we're in the middle of a series entitled Dear Church. And what we've got in Revelation is we've got seven letters written to seven churches by the resurrected Christ through the Apostle John. And so that was a mouthful, so let me just reiterate it. You got seven letters written to seven distinct and unique churches by the resurrected Jesus. He's got some things that he wants to say, 
and he uses his apostle John to do it. These were real churches in real places with real people. You've, you've heard the, the statement that where two or three are gathered, Jesus is present, right? Well, that is true, but in my experience, where two or three are present, there's also conflict most of the time. And that's happening in these churches. Like any church, each of these churches has some unique features. They've got some unique quirks. I haven't been around Faith Bible long enough, but I'm sure you've got your quirky things that you do. We've got the quirky things that we do at our church that if you showed up on a Sunday, you'd be like, that's really weird. Why do they do that, right? Each of these churches had strengths, weaknesses, temptations, and struggles. And Jesus has some things that he just wants to speak into these churches. And so let me take a minute and just recap kind of where we've been in the series just to remind you or in case this is your first time. So it starts off in Revelation 2 with the church at Ephesus and sort of the the catchphrase, the thing that sticks with you from that is he commands them, he tells them love. If you know anything about the church at Ephesus and and I think the church that I'm at, this would be, if there's going to be one of these that would really relate to us, it might be this one. But if you know the, the story of the church at Ephesus, The gospel had moved in power in this city, so much so that that as messengers bring the gospel and as the church goes forth and as the Holy Spirit works, if you know the story, entire industries, I mean, you can read about this in the book of Acts, but, but, but industries that were based upon making and selling idols start to go out of business because the gospel goes forth in power so much. I mean, that would be like the gospel going forth in Lincoln in such a way that, that all the liquor stores, all the strip clubs, all, the, all of those kind of things just cease to exist. This church is rolling, the structures are put in place, everything is going great, their doctrine is sound, and Jesus says, I have this against you. At some point along the way, you stop loving me. Everything's going great, but at some point, you lost your first love. The second church, Smyrna, he says, says, don't fear. Lots of reasons to be afraid. You flip on the news, you're just like, fear. You get to know some people, and you're like, fear. To Smyrna, he says, don't fear. To Pergamum, he says, don't compromise, right? Competing narratives, competing worldviews, don't compromise this. To Thyatira, he says, and I love this one. This is, I'm going to write this one down because I like that you guys called it this. Be intolerant. If you want to pull the cat's tail in 2021, it's that. Be intolerant. Don't tolerate people who, who, who are going to do things to the, to the truth and, and skew it. Number five, Sardis, he says, wake up. Wake up. You've fallen asleep. And now today, number six, Philadelphia, he's going to say, hold fast. And I am very appreciative that I get this kind of fun church to, to, to preach on today. Hold fast. It's this idea of cling. Grab onto. And what he's going to say is, Cling to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Grab on to Christ. And there's some reasons that they're going to have to do that. You see, Philadelphia was a faithful church. It was steadfast. And kind of like the church at Smyrna, if you were here when we uh, preached through that, we're not given a, a, a warning. We're not given a word of discipline. So that makes these two churches kind of unique. Instead, Jesus encourages them to, to stay the course. And what we learn from this particular letter to this church in this place is how to remain steadfast, how to have courage, how to remain faithful to Christ, whether you live in Philadelphia or Lincoln or Norfolk. 
Now, before we dive in this morning, and we're going to get to the text, but before we do, uh, I want to take a minute to just set up sort of the, the framework. What was happening in Philadelphia that this is what needs to be written to them? This is what needs to be addressed to them? Because if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand why the emphasis is on these things. So, so the church in Philadelphia was, was facing outside pressure, um, conflict, struggle, consternation from two different sources. The first type of opposition came from those outside of the church in the culture, and we would expect that. In a sense, every single church struggles with that. In Philadelphia, they were facing it from the pagan, idolatrous influence of the Greco-Roman culture. So you had the Greco-Roman culture, the Roman government actually starting to bring physical persecution, pass laws, start to question Christians. This wasn't unique to Philadelphia. In fact, each of the churches faces this. But there's another piece of opposition that, that, that at least it seems like is maybe unique to this church, and if it's not unique to this church, at least this is the one where it seems to be at a boiling point and needs to be addressed. There's also opposition from religious Jews. In Philadelphia, you had a group of Jewish people, and, and, if, and if you remember, I assume you remember this, but in case you don't, Jesus was Jewish. And by and large, the Jewish people had rejected him. They didn't believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah from the Old Testament. And so these are the kind of people who, who had they been there when the Sadducees and Pharisees were arguing with Jesus, they would, have, they would have been on team Pharisee. Had they been there when people were chanting, crucify him, they would have joined into the chanting. These people, these Jewish people in Philadelphia, they view this church as some sort of weird cult made up of people who, by and large, had been Jewish and who are now wandering from the truth. Now, j just for a minute, just, just imagine what this would have been like and maybe how this would have played out in this smaller town. If you read through the book of Acts, when the gospel is, first goes to a place, when messengers brought the message of the gospel to a place, often the first place that they would have gone was the Jewish synagogue. And the scripture says that they would go to a synagogue and they would reason from the scripture with the Jewish people because they had this, this point, this place of commonality. Hey, we believe the Old Testament, you believe the Old Testament. They shared the same scriptures. And so they would go and they would try to reason from the scriptures that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. They'd go to places like Isaiah 53. They'd go to places like the Psalms and they would show how Jesus fulfills all of this. And this amazing thing happens. Many people start to believe but many don't. And so just, just put yourself there for a minute, what that might have played out like a church. A guy comes in and he reads something from the Bible and he says, hey, this is Jesus, don't you see that? And an amazing thing happens. This, this, this wife would hear that and her eyes would be open and the spirit would move and, and she would say, yeah, yeah I, I believe. And her husband's looking at her like, what? Or you'd get... Um, You'd get, you'd get a, a pair of grandparents, right? You'd get a pair of grandparents, and they would hear this message, and they would, they, they would say, man, absolutely, this is amazing. We're seeing Scripture be fulfilled in our presence. And their kids would look at them like, if you go with those Christians, you're not seeing the grandkids anymore. This is how this would play out, and it started to stir up all kinds of trouble in Philadelphia. Well, add to it the fact that in that day, there were very few copies of the scriptures, right? They didn't, they didn't just readily have these things available. And they didn't have phones that they could just flip on, right? 
So the scriptures that they did have were controlled by the religious leaders who were in the Jewish synagogue. So if you were part of the church, if you were part of the church in Philadelphia, you had likely lost family, you'd likely lost friends, you didn't have access to the tradition that you grew up with, you were told that you were the one who'd gone astray, and that God was probably mad at you for doing that. And all of that starts to take a toll. And so here are these Christians. They're hated by the pagan culture, and they're starting to move in on them. And they're hated by the, the Jewish religious establishment that most of them had come from, who's starting to move in on them. And yet here's what Jesus says about this church. Revelation 3, verse 8. At the end of the verse, Jesus says, And yet, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Would that be said of us? They didn't waver. Jesus' message to them is to keep on plugging on, and this church is going to serve as an example for us. Don't we want to be steadfast? Don't we want to endure until the end? Don't we want to faithfully persevere? The reality is, is that there's days where that's really easy. Right? So you... You, you, you come into this, and, and in the church that I'm at, we're a, a, a revitalization work, and uh, at one time we were a bowling alley, and uh, it's, it's, look, it's, 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 it's nice, but it's not this. You walk in here, and this is a beautiful facility. Your coffee tastes really good. You've got a parking lot out front. Man, I would kill for a parking lot. It's easy to walk in here with people who love Jesus and worship Jesus and sing songs about Jesus and listen to a sermon intently and, and you leave and you're going to head to lunch after this and you're like, man, isn't God good? God's doing so many amazing things. And then Monday comes. You get back to the grind of life. You get surrounded by people who love different things, who are listening to different messages, who are proclaiming different truths. Or you turn on the news and you just get really anxious about the kinds of things that you see happening here and around the world and you just think, man, it's, I don't know that it's so easy to hold fast. So here's the big idea this morning. The big idea, we can remain steadfast, unwavering, by holding fast to Jesus. And then this is the key. His faithfulness to us fuels our faithfulness to him. The fact that he's continually faithful to us if we really believe that, will fuel our faithfulness to him. And so I'm not sure how you normally do things, but this morning I want to walk through the text, and, and I'm going to give you five reasons why we can hold fast to Christ. Five reasons. Here's number one. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Hold fast to Jesus because he's the one true God. Hold fast to Jesus because he's the one true God. Here's where we begin, Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia... Right. The words of the Holy One, the True One. If you've been tracking in this series, each new letter starts with Jesus giving some kind of description to himself. Sometimes um, it's just a straight up fact. Here's who I am. Sometimes it's um, some sort of um, image. What he's going to do with Philadelphia is going to make all sorts of Old Testament allusions. Jesus introduces himself to Philadelphia by saying, I am the Holy One. The word holy means set apart, distinct. Jesus is categorically 
different, distinct from everything else. He is pure. He is perfect. He is flawless. Quite simply, he is holy. But in that verse, he goes next level by saying, holy one. When those two words combine and you create this phrase, holy one, when combined together, holy one means God. It was used over and over in the Old Testament to mean God. So, so remember who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of people who largely had grown up Jewish. They, they grew up with the scriptures. They grew up reading passages. They knew that Holy One meant God. So for instance, Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So when Jesus says, I'm the Holy One, he's reminding them that he's God. He starts off this entire letter saying, hey, I'm God. Now I got some things to say. Such a claim. This is a big claim. This is a bold claim. This is the kind of claim that gets Jesus landed on a cross. And so this is exactly the kind of claim that gets everybody nervous. This is exactly the kind of claim that gets all of the Jewish people worked up. This is exactly the kind of claim that gets all the Romans worked up because if, if there's another God, if there's another Lord, someone else I have a higher allegiance to, then, then I can't get what I want, right? And so this was challenged, and we better believe that it's challenged in our culture as well, is it not? Sometimes it's just overt challenge coming from alternative religions and worldviews that would claim something different, right? So, so Islam. Islam would say that, you know what? Jesus is a great prophet. There's many prophets. Jesus isn't God. Atheists. In general, they wouldn't have a whole lot positive to say about Jesus, but they might say, at best, he was most likely a historical figure, and you know what, if, if we take some of the best, he, he did have on occasion some good things to say, and, and he maybe left us with a good example of, of how to sacrifice and put others before ourselves and, and, and some of that kind of stuff, which they haven't really read a whole lot of Jesus um, because Jesus has some pretty hard things to say, right? But they would, at the end of the day, they would say, he's not God. Or you've got the Mormons. And they would concede that Jesus is a God, but a, a little g God amongst millions of little g gods, right? There's, there's just outright opposing worldviews and narratives, but there's also much more subtle ways that this claim to, of Jesus being the one true God is, is challenged, and it, it happens in ways that should make us maybe a lot more nervous than just the overt ways, right? I don't know about you, but I, but I get on social media, and, and within Within 45 seconds of being on Facebook, I can find a post that says something along the lines of, of um, you do you, or live your truth, or find your way, or something like that. But if we're going to be followers of Christ, if we're going to claim to be followers of Christ, then we have to follow what Christ says, and Christ has been consistent. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through him. Here in Revelation 3, verse 7, Jesus comes right out and says, these are the words of the Holy One. And then he adds, the true one. He's true. He's not fake. He's not forged. 
He's not imitation. He's not imaginary. He's true. The first thing that Jesus wants these Christians in Philadelphia, who, here's the reality, they're taking it from all sides. They are hanging on, but you start to think like, man, how much longer are they going to hang on? Right? Grip starting to maybe loosen. Jesus is saying, hey, hold fast. I'm the real deal. You're going to hear a lot of narratives. You're going to encounter a lot of competing worldviews. You're going to get pushback, but keep your eyes on him. Hold fast. Jesus isn't one option on the religious buffet of equals. He's not a crutch for the weak. He isn't an imaginary friend for the naive. He isn't just a good moral example. He is the one true God. And so anything else that you cling to, put your hope in, hold fast to. I'm just trying a number of ways to try to say this. It's less. If you want to cling to your job security, it takes one economic downturn, gone. If you want to cling to your health, it might take one trip to the hospital, gone. If you want to cling to, start filling in the blank. Anything else that you cling to is less. We hold fast to him. He's the one true God. End of that verse. He keeps going. He says, and he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here's the second reason we get, you can write this down. Hold fast to Jesus because he alone opens the door to eternal life. Hold fast to Jesus because he alone opens the door to eternal life. So a few years ago, um, back when I was basically the only staff member at our church, uh, which meant that I, I kind of did everything, um, I was taking our junior high youth group to Adventureland over in Des Moines. So me, um, 11 or 12 junior hires in a van for the day, this is going to be really fun, right? And so you can just imagine about how this went, right? So, so we get to Adventureland, it was great, had an awesome day, and we're coming home, everybody's sort of tired and grouchy, including the driver, uh, which was me, and uh, we stop at this pizza ranch buffet in the middle of nowhere, somewhere along I-80, and we're gonna get some food, and then we'll have about a two-hour journey back home. So we stop, get our food, everybody's feeling a little bit better, and we're walking to the van, only two more hours left, and then we will, we'll put this one in the history books, right? And so as we get to the van, and actually to the door of the van, it dawns on me that the key, the only key to the van, I've locked in the van. So here I am, I'm, I'm stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of teenagers at eight o'clock on a Saturday night, and I'll tell you, I have never wanted to be in a 15-passenger church van as badly as I did in that moment, right? For me, in this situation, a key would mean salvation. A key would mean access. A key would mean the opportunity to have these teenagers stop making fun of me for locking the key in the car and for their parents to stop blowing up my phone. A key meant going home. Now, eventually, I didn't tell the end of this story in the second service, so people wanted to know kind of the wrap-up of this. We sat on the side of the road for about two hours waiting for a locksmith to show up, and uh, all the while there was like a back door on the van that was open. And so, anyway, <laughs> there's, uh, there's that piece of it, right? So just, you know, experience, right? What Jesus is saying is that there's one key into God's kingdom. There's no copies. There aren't multiple ways. The key of David 
refers to God's promise that he would send a Savior from the line of David. There was an expectation that when this Savior came, he would open the door, open the path. Isaiah 22, 22 says this, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and then this should sound familiar. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Jesus is saying, I'm him. And Jesus never loses the key. Look what he adds in verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. If he opens the door, there isn't anybody who can close it. And so we're reading along and we're like, okay, that's great. That's some nice information. But, but why is it so important for these Christians in Philadelphia to know this truth? Look at verse 9. He's going to clue us into the context. Here's why they need to know. And I'm going to keep coming back to this because context is everything. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. So he's talking about this local group of Jewish people in Philadelphia, and many of the people in the church had come out from that group. And so just imagine what what this might have been like if you were a Christian. I'm just trying to put you there. You go to that family gathering on the weekend to watch the, the Husker game. And half the people there don't want anything to do with you because you left. Or you go to Hy-Vee and you see that guy in the aisle who's trying to avoid you because you left. They're being told, you're the ones who left. You're not good with God. You have left the faith. Now keep in mind, it was this synagogue These were the people who had actually rejected Jesus, but they're telling Jesus' followers that they hadn't done all the rituals. They hadn't performed the right ceremonies in the right order, and by embracing Jesus, they are daily blaspheming against him. I mean, can you just imagine what it would be like to be a new believer in that setting? You're trying to follow Jesus, you're trying to do this, you're trying to live out your faith, and you're constantly being ridiculed on all sides. This is tough. And this is why Jesus comes so hard. He isn't playing around when he calls them a synagogue of Satan. It's not warm and fuzzy, positive or encouraging. There's one person with a key, one way into the kingdom, one who declares you in or out. It isn't the religious establishment that declares you in or out. It isn't the hyper-spiritual It isn't the person who loves making you feel like you never measure up. And I think if John was writing this today, the thing that would get added to this, it also isn't the super smug secular guy on social media who thinks he gets determined who's on the right side of history. There's one person that says whether or not you're in or out, and if he opens the door, no one can close it. There's one person, if you just hear this today, there's one person that you need to be in right standing with. And his name's Jesus. Fix your eyes on him, cling to him. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He's the one with the key. Keep reading verse 9. He's talking about the synagogue of Satan, and he says, Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here's the third reason that we're given. Hold fast to Jesus, because he alone will vindicate you. Cling, keep your grip on Christ because he alone will vindicate 
you, right? So I'll say this one more time because you're going to get this, right? Synagogue of Satan wasn't a compliment. Jesus skips right past passive-aggressive and just goes to just aggressive-aggressive, right? This is harsh language. And this is the type of language Jesus has for those who are persecuting his people. And that should give us confidence. When you feel like you're under the thumb of somebody or you feel like, like you're the only one or you feel like you're facing that unfair situation or you feel like there's no hope, or you just, one day, one day you will be vindicated. Over and over throughout scripture, God promises that he's gonna vindicate his people and judge their enemies. Listen to this, Romans 12, verse 19. He says, don't take revenge, my dear brothers. Look, can, we, can we just be honest? There's, there's days where we have the opportunity to take revenge, and it would feel good to take revenge. He says, don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. Then he quotes Moses in Deuteronomy. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what he's promising here. Jesus' statement reminds these Christians that being in the family of God has nothing to do with your religious credentials. You can be born into the best family. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has nothing to do with you saying and self-identifying as a person of faith. Being in the family of God has to do with the object of your faith. What is your faith in? They say that they're Jews, but, but they're not. Not really. Now, Jesus isn't saying that they don't have Jewish blood running through their veins. He's saying that they're claiming to be God's people, but they aren't. If they really were God's people, then they wouldn't have rejected God's Messiah. Here's how the Apostle Paul explains it, Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, so physically, genetically, right? They, they, they got the look. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So Jesus is saying, these people who claim to be Jewish, who claim to be the people of God, but yet they're persecuting you, on that last day, they'll be humbled, you'll be vindicated. Cling to him. Hold to him. Have your grip on him, because one day, one day it will be revealed that your hope, that your faith, that your trust was in the right thing. Now, what does this mean for us, right? I don't, I don't know many of you that well, and I don't even know Lincoln particularly that well, but my guess is that very few of us in the room have ethnically Jewish people oppressing us, right? Nevertheless, this verse is encouragement to you that no matter what opposition you face, it may be friends that unfriend you or family that mock you or coworkers that judge you or, 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 or whatever. Commitment to Christ may very well mean that you're going to get overlooked, especially in the days ahead. And here's just the relevancy of a letter like this in Revelation 3. I don't claim to be prophetic in this, but, but I, I think I can look and see where things are, are headed. I think we're about to face some new things, especially in our country and especially in a place like Nebraska that, 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 that we probably haven't faced before. And, and I'm not trying to fear monger here, but, but I just wanna, just wanna just, just be real about this and let's prepare for this. And this is why this, this is so important. 
It wasn't that long ago, that many generations ago, where if Lincoln is like Norfolk, and I assume that it is, maybe you're a little bit culturally ahead of us, um, but it wasn't that long ago, maybe think your, your grandfather's generation, where if you wanted to get ahead in business, or you wanted to be connected to the right people, then it was advantageous for you to attend some certain churches in the community, right? You know what I'm talking about? The day is coming, and we'll be here shortly, when not only will it not be an advantage to you, but it will be a disadvantage to you, and maybe harmful to you, financially, relationally, to be connected to churches who proclaim orthodox Christian beliefs. Jesus' message is hold fast. Cling to him. We hope that doesn't happen, but cling to him. Don't let difficulty, trial, embarrassment, or loss allow you to take your eyes off Jesus. In the end, you'll be vindicated. Number four, hold fast to Jesus because he'll keep you. Hold fast to Jesus because he'll keep you. Verse 10, here's what it says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Right? So, so, so let me just say this verse, verse 10, highly debated. I got the easy letter minus this verse. A lot of ink spilt debating this verse. What does it mean? So if you've got questions, uh, email tom at faithbiblelincoln.org. He would love to spend his entire Sunday afternoon cleaning up my mess, right? Here we go. So seriously though, what does it mean when Jesus says the hour of trial? Additionally, what does it mean that Jesus will keep Christians from that hour, right? So, so here's some of the options. Some think that this is prophecy giving Christians sort of a, a loving heads up about mass persecution of Christians by Rome that's about to happen. And it did actually happen. Quickly. Others take the hour of trial coming to be a reference to the persecution and suffering that will occur directly because of the second coming of, directly before the second coming of Christ. So a specific period of tribulation. Now, I err toward this second view, um, but both of the views are plausible. Furthermore, what does it mean that Jesus will keep Christians from that hour? Does that mean that he will sustain and care for Christians in the midst of intense suffering? So at my church, we just got done preaching through the book of Daniel, right? Rackshack and Benny, the fiery furnace, um, Daniel and the lion's den. God's going to keep in that hour? Or does it mean that he'll keep them from going through it at all. In other words, he'll pull them out before it happens, right? Does keep mean prevent from or persevere in? Now, if you zoned out during all of that and you're like, well, why, why does it even matter? I'm just going to go option number three. We'll call both good. I'm going to kind of pick option number three. For the sake of time, and what's consistent in all of the interpretations and what we know from Scripture is that Jesus is faithful to keep his people. He will sustain you. So whether it is the fiery furnace, the lion's den that you're going into, your faith sustains you. He sustains you in the midst of it because of your faith. Or it could be that he takes you out of it. Either way, he keeps you.
John 6, verse 39, just listen to these words. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given to me. Philippians 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God has begun a good work in you, he's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to leave you out to dry. He will keep you. Whether you're facing difficulty in this life or tribulation in the days to come, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because he's got his grip fixed on you. Amen? Trust that he's going to keep you. Here's the last reason, number five. Hold fast to Jesus because he's working in you in a significant way. Hold fast to Jesus because he's working in you in a significant way. So, so, so far, here's, here's the pattern. Let me recap. He says, hold fast. Here's who Jesus is. He's the holy one. He's the true one. Then he says, hold fast. Here's what Jesus is going to do for you. He's got a key for you. He's going to vindicate you. He's going to keep you. Now he ends by saying, hold fast Here's what Jesus is doing in you. Verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So keep your eyes on him because he's coming soon. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Faith Bible, would you be the kind of church who hears what the Spirit of God is saying to you? They'd heard what everyone else was saying. I mean, the synagogue of Satan, the religious elite, had said they weren't good enough, that they believed a lie or that they weren't in. And what happens when you constantly give credence to a lie, you start to believe it. Or even if you don't go all the way in, in fully believing it, it causes you to question. It causes you to waver. It causes your foundation to be shaken. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe we can have it both ways. We'll kind of do the Jesus thing, but under the radar, but, but we'll, also, we'll, we'll also go back. Jesus says, I've got the key. I open the door. I'm going to vindicate you. I'm going to keep you. And lastly, he says, I'm going to make you a pillar in my kingdom. What does that mean? A pillar was a significant part of a building's structure, especially in that day. I mean, we're doing some work projects right now, and we're like, there's like aesthetic beams and faux beams. And right, like back then, you just had beams that were structurally significant. Jesus says to this struggling group of believers, you are structurally critical to my kingdom. And then he says this whole thing about a new name. What in the world is that about? Well, it's interesting. Historically, the city of Philadelphia underwent several name changes. In fact, a few years before the writing of this, the name of this city was Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city. And then they changed it to Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so Jesus says to this suffering church, I got another name change for you. I'm going to give you another name, a better name. I'm going to write on you the name of my God in the name of his city, and even my own name. Just as a sports team puts its logo on all of its uniforms, or an artist signs a painting, or a rancher puts its brand on its cows, he's going to stamp us with his name. And there's nothing that anybody can do to undo that. Church, this is the promise for you, if your faith's in Jesus. 
If your faith is in Jesus, if you hold fast to him, if you cling to him, then we get to stand in the conquering victory of Jesus. Just, let, just, just take just a moment and let it hit you. If you belong to him, he's building you into a pillar in his kingdom. Why? I don't know. I think there's better ways that he could do it. But he chooses to use us. So I want to end with this. If you're in Christ, keep your eyes fixed on him. Hebrews 12, verse 2 puts it like this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the days ahead, we don't know what the future is going to hold. Maybe we'll go into an incredible season of revival where God answers our prayers and we start seeing people at the highest levels of government and in our communities and our workplaces and our families uh, become born again and believe in Christ. And we'll go through this incredible period of revival in this nation and in the world and things will just be easy and fun and awesome. Or it might be really difficult. This cultural Christianity just continues to erode. And, and, and on one hand, I, I celebrate the erosion of cultural Christianity, right? Because then that's left is, is real Christians. But as cultural Christianity erodes, er, erodes so do the Judeo-Christian values that go with it. And if those erode with it, then it means living as a Christian in that world becomes much more difficult. And we're going to have to start learning from our brothers and sisters around the globe who've never experienced what we get to experience. But here's the point either way. What we learn from the church at Philadelphia is that no matter what comes, good times, bad times, ugly times, the answer is the same. Hold fast. Cling. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Trust that his grip is fixed on you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible relevancy of what was happening in Philadelphia. God, we can relate to many of the things that they were feeling whether that comes from relationships and people that we know or it just comes by turning on the nightly news or scrolling through the, the, the Twitter feed and just being concerned and anxious about what's happening in this world. But God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us perseverance by your spirit to allow us to cling to you, to hold fast to you, to trust in you, to not waver because God, you don't waver on us. You haven't lost your grip on us. God, help us keep our eyes fixed upon you. Jesus, as we get anxious and nervous about what's happening around us, maybe locally, maybe internationally, maybe in our nation, God, I'm reminded that you're not up in heaven anxious about what's happening. You're not worried about your kingdom being built. You're not nervously waiting, uh-oh, when am I going to come back? God, on your resume is that you created the world out of nothing. God, allow us to be a people who trust in you, who trust in your sovereignty, and who cling. We love you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would press this into the people of Faith Bible as they leave from here, that this church would continue to stand as a faithful beacon of light into the future. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.